Hi, it's Steve Hargadon, and it is Friday, July 16th, and this is the first episode of the new Future of Education Daily Show. Um, Mara Leineberger is our guest today. Mara is a lifelong educator, author, technologist, artist, ballroom dancer, and musician. Having spent 25 plus years in service as a public school educator, teacher, trainer, and administrator. She is an adjunct professor at Wilson College in Pennsylvania, teaching courses on digital portfolios, as well as mindfulness in the classroom. She is the founder and COO of Microschool Builders, helping frustrated teachers and parents all over the planet to build microschool, the microschools of their dreams. Welcome, Mira. Thanks for having me, Steve. It's so exciting that you're restarting this amazing show. Yeah, let's talk about that just for a second. Because you and I participate in a weekly call that we call Learning Revolutionaries. And the restart of the show, there's a little bit of history that it's worth the 30-second retell. So I did over 300 interviews for futureofeducation.com some years ago and felt like the conversation just kind of died. That people really weren't interested in talking about the deeper aspects of teaching and learning. And that there were lots of sort of very short Twitter-like three to five minute videos that were getting posted and kind of the long form conversation was going away. Do you think the moment is different now? Yes and no. <laughs> yes, I think, you know, we're at a crisis point. We're at that point where things are, systems are failing. Um, you know, the pandemic has showed us what is not working in education and so there are many of us, I think, who are having these revolutionary conversations about what's not working and what can we do about it. And then I think not, because an awful lot of people just want to go back to way, the way things were. They want, we, we were chatting about this this morning. I think there are a whole lot of people out there that want the easy button. Isn't that just human nature? Probably. Yeah, probably. I mean, yeah, I think so. And it's hard to keep complex things in your active brain. So it feels like in a lot of cases in our lives, we, we systematize in order to free up cognitive resources. And it feels like school has been this sort of consistent story narrative, whether or not it's been healthy, that it just exists as it is so we can move on with other things. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, what did we see during the pandemic, Steve? Parents who were essential workers were desperate for places for their children to be during the day so that they could actually get off to work. Uh, and when kids were faced with remote working, uh, remote learning, um, and parents had to have their children cared for, um, there was a real bind. So, you know, let's be realistic. First and foremost, education has become child care service for everybody in the U.S. and probably in many other countries around the globe. It's only secondarily that, you know, the kind of quality of learning, teaching and learning that go on become the thing we think about, you know, because you have to take care of those primary needs first, right, for safety, security. Um, and in the case of parents, working parents, there is a desperate need for child care. Can we, can we put this in the long historical scope? Meaning the, you know, the advent of modern public schooling is, has not existed forever. Two parent working families as the norm has not existed forever. The pandemic 
has not existed forever. Is there a trajectory worth talking about here? What is, is what we do that we call schooling actually what we think it is? It's, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> You're right. Education as we know it has not existed for very long. It was something that, I mean, everyone taught their children the basic things that they needed to know to survive in the place where they were living, right? How to, to, how to gather food or cultivate food, how to care for animals, how to build living structures to, you know, provide yourself shelter. And as we became more industrialized and, and created uh, systems for making those things happen at a larger scale so that everybody didn't have to do them for themselves, we freed up time uh, and space where education could become a thing that could be also outsourced and um, it could start to tackle higher level concepts, right? And that's really what our educational model was founded on. It was to create a set of workers who could go in and work in those big industrial systems to free up more and more people to do other things that would help the species evolve. I feel like that's a story also that we tell, mm -hmm. but that there's actually more complexity there as well, right? So there were other threads that all combined at the same time. You had the, the sort of the flourishing of the scientific revolution you had mass movements of immigrants. You had a desire to actually improve the human condition. Um, I mean, I, I use the same shortcut sometimes to talk about the, the function that schools perform, but I think there were a lot of very noble purposes originally as well, right? Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. not, every, not every family was going to do a good job teaching their children. Not every child was going to have opportunities. And so sort of in the name of fairness or a desire, a sincere desire to help larger numbers of people, we would provide an opportunity even for those whose families didn't do that kind of work. Right. I agree. Yeah, I totally agree. I think the thing that you're maybe pointing to is we have not had a discussion that involved everybody for a long time about what is the purpose of education and what is it that we currently want or need for our children in terms of their preparation for the future? Yeah, uh, an analogy I like to use is, the, is food, mm -hmm. right? So we don't supply standardized food to everybody. We accept that, unfortunately, some people are going to eat bad food and some people are going to be hungry. But we don't, for some reason, we don't look to a single system to provide everybody with identical food. So why would that be different than learning? Well, I'm, you're, I'm right there with you on that. I mean, that's, that's the focus of all of my work right now is that that one-size-fits-all kind of thinking that that tends to be the mass system of education of compulsory education doesn't work for every kid and that uh, for those parents who are willing to say hmm you know this thing that is free that is being offered to me actually isn't working for my child i need to find something else um, small schools micro schools in my mind are a great option for that family that says this isn't working for me um i 
think that home-based education or world schooling or unschooling or any of those kinds of new forms of new old forms of education are uh, are really kind of out of my reach too. I want my kid to be taught by somebody, but in a smaller, kinder, gentler space, micro schools are the answer. And they're they are not actually something that's brand new. They have new twists to them for sure, but they are not really new. They it's just a throwback to our first sort of formal educational settings of one room schoolhouses. Yeah, would you say that if you're trying to parse out the the historical roots of microschooling, that it, you know, kind of give a sense of one room schoolhouse, homeschooling, unschooling, pandemic pods. What's the history and legacy that leads to microschools? Yeah, I, so um, the term's been around for about ten years. Um, you know, I. I cannot remember off the top of my head the person that coined the term and it's it's there in Wikipedia but you know it is it is the next sort of generation as I see it of the alternative education movement where um, people like Dewey and then you know like the democratic Sudbury schools schools like um, uh, Summerhill and England that have been around for a hundred years have been doing what's called progressive education. So education that's more student focused, more student led. Um, people have been doing that for the last hundred years. Uh, Microschools, that term really captures in a way that's more commercially visible, I think, especially to parents and, and families who you know, maybe aren't as geeked out about education speak. I think that, that the term micro school does a great job of capturing the sort of feeling, the idea in one nutshell, this idea of a small school. Blade from it, you know, community based. Um, community, if a part of the community responsive to the community's wants and needs, uh, utilizing the resources in the community, multi-aged, uh, with a lot more freedom to come and go and to be indoors and outdoors and less direct curriculum, a more emergent curriculum that comes out of what kids are interested in. Yeah, I'm curious. We're going to dive a little bit deeper into exactly what micro schools are and your definition and the like. But I'm curious, do people push back immediately with, uh, well, that's great for those who can afford to do it, but you're ignoring all of the other kids? Yeah, I hear that a lot. And, um, you know, generally the way that I coach and advise on that is, um, first and foremost, what a micro school owner needs to do is to create a viable business. And so um, right now, there have not been any big funders who have said, you know, we actually believe in this movement, we're going to fund the opening of micro schools so that there is um, equity across all financial um, domains. Help. So what we're doing is setting tuition tuition at a rate that's competitive, but that allows for a sliding scale. So all of the folks I'm working with have the ability to offer tuition discounts for families in need, and, and a couple of them even have have scholarships set up for families that can't afford a micro school. So um, the thinking is set them up in a viable way so that they're financially stable. That will actually attract investment and and donation. Um, 
families who can afford pay, families who cannot receive a discount. And ultimately, I think the bigger goal is to demonstrate through the use of or through the creation of multiple microschools that this smaller, more personalized kind of learning really is impactful, really does make a difference, and to demonstrate specifically the groups of the kinds of kids who benefit from this so that the bigger systems of education will take notice and will will hopefully create those kind of learning opportunities within their systems. So, you know, teachers have for a long time asked for smaller class sizes. Um, and the fact that we're still educating kids in these mass groups of kids all the same age, that's just a convenience for the system. Not really, it's not really designed to be beneficial to the kid. And there's a lot of research out there that's showing that it's actually not all that beneficial for kids to just be educated with, with kids like themselves, that having diversity of age, gender, racial, ethnic groups, socioeconomic groups is, is great for kids because it allows them to have a much broader view of the world. It's not as though the current system doesn't actually have a, a money component, meaning teachers are getting paid, administrators get paid, the community and parents are through taxes paying for a dollar amount that goes towards schools, there are budgets. Mm -hmm. It's just that the micro school exists separate from that so that it's an additional financial burden or cost to people, just like going to a private school would be. Yeah, yeah, it, it, to it totally is. It's, it's, it's at, at the current moment, um, because there is no funding for micro schools coming out of the, the you know, that, that's a whole nother conversation, Steve, about why we set up schools to be funded out of real estate taxes, because it has what that has actually done has perpetuated ongoing inequity as well. So like we could say that micro schools are not equitable because only wealthy parents can pay for them. But frankly, our school system is funded in a very similar way. Um, you know, we just don't want to talk about that. But, um, you know, I, I, I digress. No, no, it's, it's all part of this really fascinating conversation. And if we're here at this moment in time because the pandemic created uh, disruption, and if the disruption is a chance to actually talk about the function and form of schooling, the money is a big part of that. It is. It is. And until, I mean, that I think is going to be a longer conversation to to reform the funding process for public education. It's probably one of the things that should be tackled. But in the meantime, there are kids who need something different, who need to be served differently. And so um, one of the things I talk about with my clients is, is think about who holds the bag of money, because whoever's holding the bag of money makes the decisions about what happens. So in the case of our public schools, it's the school board, right? They're the ones who are responsible for outlining the use of the funds that come in from, from the tax dollars that are collected by the state or the local, um, the local tax collector. So, you know, we don't think about it that way. Teachers definitely don't think about it. You know, teachers know that they're not the ones making the decisions. They think it's their administrators, but the administrators are actually at the will of the school board. The superintendent is at the will of the school board. Their superintendent's job is to, is to enact the plan that the school board lays out. 
I think it's partly why we see so many really divisive uh, school board meetings right now. I was just reading about ones, you know, that are descending into really kind of very challenging situations, because I think that the average person is aware that the school board holds the power and uh, wants to attend meetings and have their voice be heard to to, uh, get change to happen. The reason I bring that up is, you know, when you're running a micro school, it's a really simplified um, transaction. It's literally a transaction between the parent and the school owner, who is usually the, the educator. So, you know, you, Steve, have a child and you want your child educated and you go to this micro school and you see that it's going to provide certain kind of outcomes for your your learner and you put down your money and you pay for your child to have that education and you're in, you actually have a relationship with that owner, with that teacher, as does your child. Um, when adjustments need to be made, you just simply talk to the owner. You don't have to go through administration, schedule meetings with the you know, principal, the superintendent, the school board in order to ch- have change happen. You have a direct conversation with the owner of the school. Um, either things change to your satisfaction and you're happy and you remain there or they do not and you remove your money from the situation and, and you walk away. So it's this very responsive system because you as the parent have the bag of money and you say, yes, I'm going to, I am going to invest in this uh, kind of education for my child. I mean, what might be interesting, and, it, and this does happen in some places. I have clients down in Florida who are able to dip into the, um, the, the funds that are withheld for students in Florida. You know, that kind of, and I, I, you know, I'm not the biggest fan of school choice because I think it, def- it can potentially defund public education, but I don't know. The way that schools are funded right now doesn't seem to be working for everybody either. It feels like that question exists at a couple of different levels, right? So the way that schools are funded, equitable funding, and then the question of why would we fund education when we don't fund food, right? And I I know that these are sort of hot button issues for people. Uh, it's it's hard, but if you're in a crisis moment, you want to you want to ask the deeper questions. And and is it possible that part of the reason that we are comfortable funding schools, where we wouldn't fund sort of a standard food allotment, is that schools provide power. And so there's going to be an interest in determining what takes place in schools? Yeah, yeah, I think I think you're right. I mean, again, that this is a very uncomfortable conversation that a lot of people probably would rather we don't have. But, um, you know, any big systems that are created to to support the growth and development of certain kind of ideas, um, then turn around and offer power to the people who are leading those organizations. And uh, very few people, when they get there, want to let go of that. I, we've talked to you and I have talked in our other meetings about the difference between intentional activities and emergent activities. And I'm not even sure I'm using the word emergent in the right way, but there are certain behaviors or activities that grow and and get rewarded because they fulfill certain functions that are valuable, whether those functions are spoken or not. And so 
having people learn a sort of a standardized version of history, having people with a standard set of competencies. And let's just say that in some ways, that's not even academic competencies. It's taking instructions from someone else and doing things that you're asked to do and doing them on time. Those may not have been intentional desires of anybody, but they're outcomes that actually are valuable to employers, to marketers and manufacturers. It's sort of interesting to think about the fact that schooling is a, it's a form of governance or not governance. It's a form of population or it's a form of managing a population. Yeah, I, th I, I could see where you would say that. Um, you know, that, that is one of the outcomes that has happened. Um, and I think you're right. There is some value to that. Um, you know, the person who has never been to school and has never had to uh, fill out paperwork or um, have something due at a certain time may struggle taking a traditional job where um, there are deadlines, there are uh, specific tasks to be completed. So school def definitely does prepare us for those kind of things. I mean, I know stories of plenty of homeschoolers who, uh, prior to going to college, actually, maybe, you know, in, in what would be typically a junior, senior year of high school, in their homeschooling, go and take classes at community college in order to have the experience of having an instructor that has a, has expectations, gives assignments with due dates, you know, with uh, very specific criteria for how that is to be completed. Um, which helps them then to, to decide, do I want to go on to college? Is this other kind of learning than what I've experienced as a child, as a homeschooled child? Does that work for me? Is there content knowledge that this person has that I want to um, get from them? And am, am I able to follow the procedures that I'm being asked to do in order to gain that knowledge? So, um, yeah, I think there's some value to that. I, you know, I'm kind of one of those people when people ask me about micro schools, they wonder if I'm, if I'm helping to build or which kind of model I like best. Um, you know, we can run the gamut from completely unschooled kind of concepts like the democratic schools have, and they're not totally unschooled, but their structures are very loose. Education is not compulsory. Um, all the way up to, um, you know, our charter schools that, or a lot of micro schools that are that are academies um, that look not that different from our public schools, but they're just smaller and they're mm -hmm. multi-aged and more per a little more personalized. I'm one of those people who I sort of sit in the middle. I think that the best educator is somebody who is aware of and has a really good grasp of content to such a level and, and, and actually knows the standards pretty well and has a good sense of what's, what's useful for kids to know and be able to do, but can step back and can allow kids to have some freedoms. And then when there's either confusion or lack of motivation or like not an ability to be self-directed can put some scaffolding in place for kids. So, um, you know, in inquiry-based learning, there's, there's four different levels of <clears throat> weight, ways that you can do that in the beginning with with kids who've never been given the freedom to learn on their own <clears throat> a good bit of structure actually helps them to develop the muscle to be more self-directed so i'm but i still kind of like a mix of both i think not having some structures that allow kids to 
have an experience of what uh, more formal traditional education looks like is is not always the best way to prepare them for all kinds of futures that they might choose to to avail themselves of. I hear a little bit of a dilemma in that description. The phrase micro school gives a connotation of size, mm -hmm. but you're going into pedagogy. Mm -hmm. And so how do you balance, is this a commitment to small scale or is it a commitment to a certain set of pedagogies? For me, I think it's both. Um, I see the small scale as uh, being more a more productive space to enact all of the best practices that we've seen over the last hundred years that benefit learners. So that you know, self-direction, uh, project-based learning, you know, get haptic kinesthetic experiences, group work. Uh, field trips, you know, think of any of the things that we know that kids love, that get them engaged, that get them motivated in learning, um, and that use all kinds of skills and abilities. Those things are very hard to do when you have a class of 25 or 30 kids who are all the same age and who are energetically very connected to one another and feeding off of one another and looking for friendship and approval from one another. Um, I think that that the pedagogical strategies that I think are best for, for a lot of kids cannot always be put into place consistently in a big public education setting because of the number of students and the complexity of, of what it takes an educator to you know be able to know and do themselves in order to be able to make that work. So in most micro schools, you're not going to find more than like 10 to 15 kids assigned to any one educator. Most people, when they start a micro school, start out with around, you know, somewhere between eight and 12 kids as their foundational core group of students and then build from there, adding staff as they go and as their budgets will allow. So is the same thing happening in micro schools that's happened in districts where they have committed to, um, What's the phrase? The sort of the specialty schools. So they have an arts school. Mag they have magnet. Like magnet, the magnet schools. I mean, in some ways, I can imagine someone starting a micro school that matches all of the size and funding parameters that you've described, who would actually have a very different educational philosophy from you. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, you know, occasionally I'll work with those folks and then sometimes I choose not to. Um, I'll refer them out to other people who are doing this work. You know, my particular purpose in supporting the creation of micro schools is to help open schools that have a very strong focus on the child and not just a conceptual focus, but actually a pro programmatic pedagogical focus. So when I'm talking with people, if I can't hear that, you know, I'll, I'll do a little probing. Um, but when I can't hear that or I can't hear that commitment to it, when the educator or parent who's coming in is very focused on a certain kind of curriculum um, or a very specific uh, niche or theme and it's that content that's the most important thing I it's usually a hard pass for me um, I mean I, I provide them with all the resources that they need to be able to go do it themselves but as far as working directly with somebody um, I put my full energy behind the person who 
knows that their calling as an educator is to serve the child and that figuring out how to get rid of all of the interference that comes from allowing them to be autonomously working with that child in the best way they know how to professionally, you know, if I don't hear that, then that's not somebody that I'm, I don't want to say I'm not interested in working with them. It's just harder for me to, to, to shift that thinking into the child is the single most important thing in education. The learner, you know, it doesn't have to be a child, but the, the learner is the most important thing. So what you're really describing are learner centered micro schools. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, it's interesting because in some ways, micro school is such a catchy phrase mm -hmm. and and grabs so much attention that it doesn't necessarily require that you describe the pedagogy or the philosophy but you have one right and right. so you're like okay, this is this is this is what i really care about the size is facilitates getting to my model of what education should be Yes. So describe your model of what education should be. And maybe this would be a good time to kind of compare it with Montessori or Waldorf or Sudbury or, as you mentioned, democratic schools. Yeah. So so what I will say, just to sort of summarize for people who are listening, I, my, Steve, I think the term micro school, it's a marketing, it's a marketing term. Um, it is a it's not a legal there is no legal precedent for micro schools. When we build them, we actually have to look at the school code and figure out what we can legally do. So it's not, it's, it's a descriptive term that gets people's interest peaked. And then we can talk about, you know, what goes on inside of them. Um, and you're right. The, the models are really vastly different. The ones that I prefer, the ones that I focus on are learner centered primarily. Um, so, Many micro schools, what I'm seeing in, in the building of micro schools is that people are looking at all of the models out there and then they are picking and choosing the aspects of those models that work best for the children who have shown up in their community. Or, you know, at, at least to start with, the educator is choosing the things that feel the best to them. So I'll work with people who will say to me, um, you know, I love that that Montessori uses all of these concrete materials for children to work with. But what I don't love is that, that there's this very, um, it's not scripted, but this very particular way in which you work with those materials and that you offer them to children. So I don't want to do that, but I definitely want to have the hands-on materials. I love the democratic school process of having these, this student council that handles, um, discrepancies disturb you know disruptions in the in the student body as they come up but i don't love the whole like non-compulsory education piece of we don't learn until you say you want to learn so they'll take pieces and parts from the models that work for them and they'll put them together um does that, does that make sense i mean that's that's mm -hmm. part of my mission and part of why i'm doing what i'm doing is i am actually a professional development person i have been for 15 years i mean my students when people ask me where's your micro school my micro school is micro school builders it's a professional development program for educators 
And part of what I'm doing with my processes and my programs is I'm taking educators through a very intensive professional development program. I don't tell them that, but it's basically a graduate level course on business. Can I take um, these ideas I have and turn them into a viable business? It's a business incubation program. And at the same time, what I'm doing, and it's really subtle, I think you'll get it, is I'm, I am taking them through a process that models the exact same strategies I would hope they would use with their students. So we are using inquiry. I'm not limiting what their school can be based on some current model. I'm encouraging them to dig deeply into who they are and what they believe, and then to figure out if they can find some clients that want those same things too, and then build the micro school as a proof of concept. So I use um, lean startup methodologies to do my work. Um, but it's the same kind of thing that you would do with a kid. You know, you would start with a kid who has an idea and then you would help them to explore that idea. And, and if it works, you continue and you go more deeply into it. And if it doesn't work, you go and pick up another idea and you try something else. So um, I'm giving these adults an experience of teaching and learning that they've probably never had before as preparation for opening their school. Does that make a little bit more sense? It's, it's kind of a meta, it's a meta thing. I'm finding this fascinating, in part because I keep thinking about this comparison with food, right? So rather than the large chain grocery stores or restaurants, this is a small family-owned restaurant or family-owned grocery store. Mm -hmm. And in that particular analogy, the things that the grocery store carries or the way that they the restaurant serves food whether it's a buffet or it's italian or it's chinese food those can be very different decisions but they are micro versions of serving food mm-hmm. versus mcdonald's or some large chain or a large grocery chain so in the food world there's so much information Uh, YouTube cable TV shows on different ways to cook, different ways to prepare food, different ways to serve food, you know, all the elements of that. You're offering one set of instructional material for a small scale school, but it feels like there's, there's the potential for an explosion of that kind of sharing of this is how we do it in our school. And it's very different than the school down the road. Yeah, it's funny that you say that because literally just this week uh, with my group, I have a group that I run for school owners. So it's a, it's basically, I wouldn't, they don't necessarily see it this way, but it's professional development, ongoing professional development, but it's also um, technical support and development processes for their schools. Um, So one of my school owners was approached in the last couple of weeks by someone who said, Hey, I'd like to open a franchise of your school. So we went down this whole new route of thinking about, is this something we want to do? What does it mean to become a franchisor? I have a colleague that I know who does that kind of work. So I brought her in, um, you know, she did a presentation for my clients on what is a franchise. 
you know, what are the hallmarks of it? What does it mean to create a franchise? What is it that you're actually selling? Where do you make your profit? What is the role of the franchisor? What is the role of the franchisee? Really fascinating, you know, so it's, again, it's like, yes, I think you're correct. And there are, there are a whole bunch of people who are creating little niche things. There's a ton of people playing to the, the pod phenomenon and providing, um, services to basically connect a teacher, a vetted teacher with a group of families who have decided that they're going to just keep their pod going um, and to take care of things like, you know, finance and payroll and insurance and all that stuff for them so that they just, you know, a family, a group of families will come and say, we want a teacher and this organization will just make those connections, connect the dots. You know, I don't know how long those kind of things are going to last. I don't know how long people are going to do that. I, but it's you're correct. The the small learning environment um, opportunities plus homeschooling. I mean, good lord, there are so many more people homeschooling now than there ever have been, and I think there were there are a lot of people who are going to continue to do it. So interesting, yeah. And something that occurs to me that maybe is on your radar or not will be there may be high profile failures Mm -hmm. right and a desire to paint with a fairly broad brush a movement toward independent schooling because this particular failure that the homeschoolers face this all the time right well and that's why the homeschool legal defense association exists it's it's there to to provide legal guidance and support and, and uh defense when when that's needed um i think you know you take a look at what's going on with Prenda, they're under some serious scrutiny right now in Arizona for the work that they're doing. And they've scaled really quickly. I just read today that uh, I think it's somewhere in New England, there's there's a state that's going to partner with them for students who don't want to come back to school in the fall. Um, but, you know, it, my choice has been to stay small and to work very personally with people one-on-one um, in the creation of a small school that works, I'm very, very adamant that it has to work within the letter of the law in the state where you are. And it's when people take those kind of shortcuts and just sort of do things that, and and want to ask for forgiveness later. I think that that's that's a little foolhardy, and it it does potentially threaten all of the people who have worked really hard to um, create more personalized education. So, you know, it threatens homeschooling. It threatens the ability to do tutoring centers or coaching or whatever people are setting up for kids. It's somewhat inevitable Mm -hmm. because we like simple stories. So yeah, it should, this is a fascinating period of time. Mm -hmm. Do you think as you look at the coming landscape of public schooling, do you have scenarios that you're playing out in your mind where you'd say, okay, so one possibility is that we go to closures again this fall, and that's going to have the following implications. One possibility is that the Delta variant isn't as bad as people think, and there's a, there's a, there are protests in terms of unmasking kids and making sure that they're, they're not in those environments. What, what scenarios are you playing out as possible futures where you're kind of matching what you're doing against the possible? 
you know, it's funny. I, I try as best I can to actually not look out into the future too much. I know that's a whole being a futurist is a, is a thing. I have found much more peace and um, ability to, to make choices that work better when I stay as grounded in the present moment as I can. I know that sounds like a non-answer, but that, that comes from my mindful practice, which is if I'm, if I'm spending too much time thinking about the future or too much time reminiscing about the past, I'm creating, um, usually it's, it's anger about the past and it's anxiety about the future. And neither one of those mind states is particularly beneficial for me. So um, I do try to stay grounded and to be, you know, I look to see what other people are up to. I do read the, you know, news and see what people are talking about, but I don't really know what's going to happen this fall. What I do know is that the kids who were in our micro schools this last year never had to stop going to school uh, because their learning group uh, created some protocol for the school that kept everybody safe. In some cases, they wore masks. In some cases, they did not, but they made a commitment to one another to function as a pandemic pod. So they limited their exposure. Um, you know, I know that the micro schools that I was working with this past year worked regardless of what was going on in the world around them. And so, you know, I'm just going to continue to take on people who want to create spaces that are safe and productive and give people a decent wage. And that's another thing that I'm actually, one of the other reasons that I'm working on micro schools is to empower teachers to understand the value of the service they provide and to charge what they're worth versus having someone else like a school board determine what they, what their salary is. Let's talk a little bit more about your own personal beliefs. You and I have used the phrase agency before. Mm -hmm. What, how much is that a part of what you believe about children? Well, I think we all want some level of autonomy to live our lives the way we want to. Um, and I think school really doesn't, it doesn't acknowledge that. I mean, it's, those are some of the most profound memories I have of school, Steve, are, are, I can remember being wanting to be able to do what I wanted to do during the school day and be being told I was a selfish little girl. Um, you know, I can remember being an educator and thinking I would like to work with kids the way that I know they need and the way that I've been trained to work with them. And I remember being told that I was idealistic. That's not how we do it here <laughs> was the phrase that I was told many, many times. Um, I, but I think, you know, I'm not the only one. I think we all want autonomy. We all want the ability to have a happy, joyful, productive life, to feel like at the end of our lives that we've done something useful, something that had meaning, something that left the world a little bit better than we found it. Um, lots of people don't get a chance to actualize on that because they're, they're working to just take care of their basic needs in order to survive. Um, but those of us who have a little more abundance, you know, those are the things we think about and, and that autonomy or agency in our own lives is a big part of it. Yeah, one of the things that I think homeschoolers have struggled with a little bit is that when you create independent thinkers, they don't necessarily fit into the modern economic structure. And we say a lot, oh, companies are looking for creative people, they're looking for innovators, they're looking for independence. 
But oftentimes, the people who who develop those skills don't feel like they fit into the traditional modern world. Well, I've I've heard some reports that uh, there are more new businesses being started during the pandemic than have ever been started before at any period of time. And I think that's a reason why, right? People have been given the freedom and autonomy to work from home in some cases, and then employees, employers are asking them to come back and people are saying, you know, I don't really want to do that. I want to, I liked being my own, you know, having more freedom to to be able to get up and take a walk at lunchtime to have fewer interruptions from, my colleagues in the workspace, you know, and, and whatever it is, more autonomy over the, the work I was actually doing. Um, I'm going to go start my own business so that I can continue to do that. I think we're going to see more and more of that. And I think we're going to see that from kids when they head back to school. I mean, I know you asked me to sort of be a futurist about what's going to happen, but I, one of the things I think is probably going to happen is teachers are going to see more resistance from kids to doing things the way that they used to do them. You know, kids have been sitting on couches on the floor, laying in bed to go to school. How, how well do we think kids are going to readapt to sitting in a desk again? I definitely think that's going to be true for some percentage of kids. I worry that there's another slice of that population who've just descended into a, a lack of purpose and depression. Yep, I think so, too. I think so, too. And, you know, that is a crisis. I mean, I teach a course on mindfulness and and the statistics that we look at um, related to teen depression, well, and frankly, any age depression, but depression, suicide, bullying, all of those things are a function of not feeling good uh, where you are, not feeling good in the skin you're in, whether it's in school or at home or in your, you know, your community. So, um not having supports during the pandemic, not having access to friends, not having access to caring teachers has definitely weighed heavily on kids. And um, I don't think that's going to necessarily go away when kids come back to school. It's not going to be like some magical, okay, everything's fine now. Um, You know, the damage has been done. What do you think the role of challenges is for education, meaning how much of our learning comes because we're faced with things that push us in directions that we didn't expect to go, or we are challenged to do something that's outside of our comfort zone? I think that's the reality of education. I think any teacher worth their salt monitors it. When I, when I was a young teacher in the Pittsburgh public schools, they used the Madeline Hunter model. And the one piece of that I remember was monitor and adjust. Any any teacher who really is called to teaching does what they need to do for kids during the school day. You know, stop teaching if the kids are not paying attention and figure out what's going on and work to diffuse whatever the problem is so that students can pay attention and can learn. Um, I just think that that's... That, that's the hallmark of, of true educators. Um, it really isn't, we don't teach content. We teach students. I mean, we, we've had, I'm sure you've had that conversation. You don't teach English, you teach kids. English is the content that you give to them and offer to them, but you actually teach a human being. 
Yeah, but the 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 other is true as well, right? Like content knowledge and proficiency really change how you see the world. Right? They give you a sense of competence that 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 can't come from from a hollow thing. It, there has to actually be something that you've learned to do that's important and hard. I would agree with you, but I don't think that somebody can arbitrate what that thing is for you. Um, there has to be some connection to the things that you're interested in. You know, we don't go into a profession simply because our parents tell us to do it. I mean, some kids do, uh, but we don't live happy, productive lives if we do that. You know, then we then we reach middle age and we have a middle age crisis and we run off and go live as a gypsy or something like that because, you know, if, if we can, because we haven't actually done the things that our heart was calling us to do. Um, but I think when you figure out what your passion is, then learning becomes like water. It becomes like breathing. It sustains you and fulfills you. You know, for me, uh, I'm learning all the time. I just signed myself up to start a new class next week um, on a topic that's related to my business. That's something that I want to know how to do for my business. Nobody's compelling me to do that. No, nobody's grading me. Nobody's assessing me. I'm doing it because there is this domain of knowledge that I'm interested in that I'm going to now pursue. And I've sought out one of the best educators in that domain to be my teacher. I've never thought of this comparison, but let's play with it for a moment. Have you ever heard the statistics about arranged marriages, like in countries like India, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and the happiness, the self-reported happiness levels? Mm -hmm. And then the comparison is with love marriages and the significant percentage of divorces. So is there a degree to which we romanticize following our passions that's sometimes not actually helpful? Let me make this more pragmatic. Sometimes my having learned a skill and practicing that skill becomes the thing I love. Whereas if I say, oh, this is my passion, or I ask a child to define a passion, there might not actually be that thing that they say is the passion might not actually be the thing that's going to be most fulfilling for them. Well, I think that your analogy, so, I mean, I like the analogy. Um, and I think that there are happy relationships on both sides. I think there are plenty of arranged marriages that last because the, in that culture, marriage was placed, there was a high level of esteem placed on that to the commitment for that. The people who I think have successful arranged marriages are the people who actually understand that no matter what relationship I go into and make a commitment to, it's going to be work. It's not all going to be, you know, love and light. There are going to be hard days and there are going to be hard nights. There's going to be old age sickness and death. Um, and so successful marriages on either side for love or arranged or everything else in between for convenience. We will we'll thrive and we'll flourish if both parties are willing to work on it. Um, I think the same is the same with education. And so what you're talking about is I, I'm the girl who thinks that there needs to be a balance of both. I think that as a 
a wisdom keeper, which is what I think educators are, you know, you have experiential, not you have knowledge, content knowledge, you have experience that your students do not, which can elevate you to a place of potentially holding, having some wisdom. Your job is to watch and see what, what the student is interested in, to offer things that you know would be good for them. So content knowledge that they should possess within that interest area. And then that student is learning tenacity, uh, commitment to a topic, going to depth. But I think like, you know, the whole, think about our standards movement, it's depth or breadth. Why not both? You know, I think having both is good. There are things that I study to depth and then there are things that I study for breadth. Yeah, it is intriguing because part of at least the perception I have of happiness in life is facing certain things, disciplining myself in certain ways. I don't eat ice cream every day. I might want to, but I don't like the consequence of it. I know that I'll feel better if I exercise. So a caring adult who can help you understand the importance of choosing to do things that challenge yourself, that's a that's a really valuable role. Yeah, and, and I think that, but it's something that has to be learned um, and, and school too often takes all of that autonomy away and says, you must do push-ups right now, do 100 push-ups in the gym class or whatever it is. You must now take and study this content on this day, no matter how you feel. Um, I think there's, yeah, it's, it's not an easily solved question, Steve. I, you know, when we talk, and in these conversations, I think we always hope one of these days we're going to come arrive to the answer of this will help. <laughs> I think that that maybe we're never going to have that. The job is to become the best learner you can yourself. And then if you're an educator, assist other learners to become the best learner they can. At the end of the day, if you can do that and you can help each person you come in contact with live the best life that they possibly can, um, and you know that it's not hurting others around them and that it's actually helping to benefit others on the planet, then that's, that's a win all the way around. I think that's a good way to finish. I think the core of what I see from you is a desire to live intentionally. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Mara. Thanks for having me on, Steve. Good luck with the relaunch of this. Um, I think it's gonna be fantastic. I'm super excited. More to come, folks. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Mara. Bye-bye. Mara, your, your website address is? www.microschoolbuilders.com. And there'll be a bio for you on the website. Take care now. Bye. Okay. Bye, everybody.